Welcome to Plural Space, Conversations in Lung Cancer. In this new limited series entitled The Power of Partnerships, we connect medical professionals and patients across the care continuum for real conversations about lung cancer. Each episode will focus on one facet of this complicated field and feature the people striving to make it better. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast. I'm Ruth Carlos, the National Lung Cancer Roundtable Policy Task Force Chair and editor of the Journal of the American College of Radiology. Today, we're going to be chatting with two of my favorite people about social determinants of health, disparities, and in particular, lung cancer and lung screening. I'd like to introduce Dr. Lucy Spaluto. Hi, I'm Lucy Spaluto. I am a radiologist and a health services researcher at Vanderbilt University. Thank you so much, Dr. Carlos, for the invitation. Also, two of my favorite people to be talking to today. And Ms. Andrea Barandi-Kitz. Hi, everybody. Thank you again for inviting me to speak on this webinar. I'm a patient advocate. I lost my husband to lung cancer in 2013, and I'm also an associate editor for the Journal of the American College of Radiology, and these are two of my favorite people as well. And with all of that love out of the way, let's dive into this really meaty topic. So the last 18 months have thrown into relief how health equity is a really important issue. It has always been important. Now it's become more important than ever. When either of you think about social determinants of health and disparities, how do you conceptualize that? Let's start with Andrea. For me, when I take a look at disparities, there's health and health outcomes, and we always think of either access to care or, you know, having health insurance, but that's just one very small piece that contributes to health disparities. And I think COVID has shown us that. It's also where you live, how you work. Are you able to work from home? Do you have transportation? Do you have food source? Do you live in a food desert? All of those are critical to your health and ultimately your health outcomes. Lucy, your thoughts? I agree with Andrea. And I think, you know, you talk about the difference in health and health outcomes. I think we also think about the difference in health disparities and health inequities, whereas disparities are differences in outcomes amongst people. But the inequities are the things that are systemic and avoidable, things we need to really address. And so when I think of the social determinants, like Andre said, I think about it's the conditions in which we live and we work and which children grow and play. Things like the air we breathe and the schools that are available and our general safety. And often these things are out of our hands and these things affect not only all of our general health, but the choices we have and the decisions we make. And they influence our behaviors as well. I mean, depending on where you live, for example, tobacco use might be more normalized. So it might be something you're more likely to do with some significant detriments to your health. Is there air pollution? What kind of building do you live in? Is there lead paint in the walls? I mean, all of these things really influence our health and our health outcomes. So I've read two really interesting articles. One points to the cultural behavior of drinking Mountain Dew or sugar sodas in a lot of rural areas. And apparently part of that began because that was the safest drinking liquid that they could have in areas that had unreliably clean water supplies. And 
historical reasons can explain current cultural behaviors that, had we not had that context, might be viewed through a different lens. And the other is more future-facing. I've also seen data that show that communities of color are going to be disproportionately affected by climate change, particularly in urban areas where the differences can be up to 10 to 20 degrees hotter. And I'm thinking about the implications for cardiac health and pulmonary health. So when we think about what we can do as the healthcare system, we tend to think about, well, we need to improve access. We need to get everyone insured. We need to do high quality care. But even if we did all of that perfectly, we would change only 20% of the variation in outcomes. And the rest is due to what both of you have pointed out, which is their zip code. So with that in mind, what are some of the ways that we can start to talk about mitigating the effects of social determinants of health and health-related social needs in different domains? I would think, you know, one of the things is that we really ought to do a survey and assessment of each one of our patients that comes in, take a survey and assessment of what their needs are from a social determinant standpoint. Where do they live? Do they have food? Are they food secure? Do they have transportation? Do they have a place to live? Are they able to buy their medications? Are they able to even visit the doctor? If they have a telehealth visit, what's their health literacy? What's their English language proficiency. There's a huge gamut of things that we could assess those social needs, those health-related social needs. Almost everything is a health-related social need, right, when it comes down to it. And then provide prescriptions for them. And these would just be basically either programs within your own health network, for example, a smoking cessation program, or if there's a food pantry that's part of your network. I know some healthcare systems have that. Or or refer those out and make sure that you provide referrals for the people to get the services they need to impact their social needs. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. And as we said earlier, ethically, you pointed this out to me earlier, Ruth, that ethically, is there a liability? And ethically, can you do that assessment if you can't provide the service, can't provide a remedy or a referral? And I will say as a patient advocate, ethically, I don't see how you can't do that assessment and at least try and address that in some way. And I think it's so interesting that you bring this up and I agree, this is how we need to be moving forward. I've seen this being utilized in some settings, more in the pediatric care. I notice it for my own kids when I'm making their appointments that now this type of survey exists when I go to register asking these questions about safety and ability to buy prescriptions, ability to pay for things. I see that in their registration. And I've seen it a little bit in the primary care setting, but it raises the question as radiologists, is this something we also need to be considering for our patients? Because we reach so many patients and we have the potential to really impact things on a population health level. But it does raise that big question, if we're going to collect it, we need to be accountable for the downstream actions. And that's a big, big ask. It's a big change. 
And how do you know about those services? How do you know about each one of those? So it's almost like you have to have a menu of prescriptions or social needs, sort of like what you do for drugs, right? You have this list of different medications. So then you have the list of, okay, if there's food insecurity, these are the five places they can go depending on where they live or what their needs are. If you need rent assistance, if you need legal assistance, so then you have that list in your local community so that the providers can prescribe those. And I think this goes along with how approaching health equity and starting to address disparities and inequities is such a collaboration and we need to work with people across different fields and with the organization so that we can pool these resources and we all have access to them and we can all share them with our patients and we're not duplicating efforts necessarily, but we're working together to achieve a common goal. Yeah. And then how do we reach out to the patients, right? You know, one of the things that you talk about is, are there people that look like me that I can go to that I can trust? Because there's also distrust. If I go to my doctor and, you know, he asks me, well, are you food insecure? I might feel uncomfortable saying something. You know, I might feel like embarrassed to say anything. But if there was someone who was a woman who looked like me, I might feel more comfortable. So how do we address that part of it? And I completely agree. I think that diversity and inclusion efforts to shape the way our workforce looks really go hand in hand with these efforts to have a workforce that understands the needs of our community and can meet the needs of our community. And it all overlaps because I think a lot of these social determinants and the way the environment we grew up in might influence what we want to do when we grow up and whether or not we're able to do that. You know, the access you might have to education, the socioeconomic background you have. I mean, it's expensive to go to medical school and to do training and all of that influences who joins the workforce and which consequentially influences how capable our workforce is to serve the population that we have. So from a radiology perspective, Say I am in a private practice clinic that has a contract with multiple hospitals, multiple health systems to read their films, and a patient comes in trying to secure lung health and is engaging in lung screening. Just by making it to the radiology practice, we know that they have some degree of access to care, but we don't know how secure that access to care is. Some of the things that might prevent them from coming back the following year might be if this year we found something that we worked up and they had to pay a whole lot of money out of pocket and it turned out to be nothing, that could be consequential for someone who has a high deductible plan versus someone who has like a Cadillac plan. Then on top of that, even if you wanted to do something as a radiology practice, then it becomes sort of like a practical issue. Like, who do you refer this patient to? Do we have the relationship with this patient to ask what can potentially be intrusive questions like Andrea had pointed out? So how can we address some of the very real concerns that physicians and physician practices will have about making sure that we understand the social determinants of health of our patients and how we could make it better or at least address them? Well, I think the first thing is you got to take step one, right? Step one (laughs) is knowing that 
they exist, right? Oh boy, you know, it's not just about going to the doctor when I'm sick. Oh no, there's some other issues there that impact the health of my person. It isn't that the patient is non-compliant, it's that the person is unable to carry out the action that you've asked them to do. So I think all of that sort of feeds into it is one, first understanding that 80% of your health is really determined by social determinants of health. And then the next step is to assess it and provide actions to address it. So I think the initial step might just be, let's do the assessment and let's put together a list of places we can refer patients to. I agree. I think it's the understanding on both the patient and the provider side. Patient's understanding, as you were saying, that so much of their health is because of their environment. Providers understanding the same thing and looking within organizations to how we can start to meet those health-related social needs since they play such a big role. And this can come from direction from national policy to national organizations like the American College of Radiology, now Health Equity Coalition, to start inter-institutional efforts to see how we can all work together to do this. Um, so I agree with Andrea that that first step is getting a general understanding of everyone and then figuring out how we can work together to meet these needs. I think all of us acknowledge that the burden shouldn't be the patients alone. And we've, you know, talked a little bit about how practices can support patients and meet them where they are. In our other work, we were able to show that, you know, a significant minority of patients wind up undergoing invasive procedures after their lung screening. And for most people, the cost was quite modest. But for some people, it was, you know, hundreds, maybe a couple of thousand. And the ACA seems to be directed at making sure that first test is free, but people aren't necessarily going to come in for that first test if they're worried about affording all the care that they're going to need after that first test turns out to be positive. And it seems like we need a more system level or policy level way to address this. You know, what are your thoughts on that and how can that be addressed at yet another level? Agree. And it's the same concept in breast imaging. And we see the same thing. If someone comes in for their initial screening, then they have an abnormality, they need a diagnostic workup, maybe they end up needing a biopsy. And depending what type of healthcare coverage they have, which again, may be significantly impacted by these social determinants. We know that certain groups are marginalized by societal privilege to have larger percentage of individuals in low-wage work with little flexibility and limited health insurance. If somebody maybe has a policy that's not going to cover the downstream impacts, maybe they don't get that screening, or maybe it happens once and they're like, I'm not going back and doing that again. Like the last time I went and got screened, they found this thing, turned out to be nothing, but I had to get six more mammograms and a biopsy and I got a hematoma and got a bruise, got a, you know, whatever their process may have been. If, even if it comes out as a good outcome from that, which cross our fingers, we always hope it is, but that may deter them from doing it again if they incurred a lot of out-of-pocket expenses. In the breast imaging world, there tends to be much more friendly policy for coverage of these downstream costs. One, it's a little bit of an older study, so it's been around a little bit longer. There have been people advocating for that downstream coverage more. Lung cancer screening is a newer test, and so there's a lot of advocacy going on in that arena now and a lot of movement being made to address those policies. 
But I completely agree. We, we need to have those policies in place so that if we're going to offer a test, we need to be able to cover what happens next because it's not fair to the patients to want them to come in and get screened, but not be able to do what they need to afterwards. Yeah. And so how do we do that? I mean, that seems to be a major national level sort of insurance policy change. So that's a hard one. You know, right now we want to address health disparities. So let's take lung cancer screening. So let's say you do have people who you do the social needs assessment and you assess that, okay, their first screen will be free, but if they need additional interventions, then they're going to have to pay a lot of it out of pocket. So at that point, you can do a couple of things. One, be totally transparent with the individual and let them know that. And two, have a fund set aside to be able to help defray some of that cost for the person who will need that. We know that we have incidental findings or what about 7% on the initial scan and 4%, 3-4% on subsequent scans. So maybe we say, okay, we have an incidental findings fund for people who are at risk, who don't have the financial resources to cover that. And that could come out of some national policy level health disparities fund or grant. This is such a rich conversation. There's a lot to unpack. So one, it's a big lift potentially to get insurers to change how they pay for out-of-pocket costs or how they ask patients to pay for out-of-pocket costs. So people in our group have been working with the Biden White House and CMS to perhaps start considering that it's not a screening test followed by a bunch of other tests if it's positive, but rather it's an episode of care, right? Where it starts oh, with good, yeah. screening and then it should end with a diagnosis. And sometimes a diagnosis is you get a diagnosis of negative after that one exam. And sometimes you need a bunch more exams to find out that it really is negative or it really is something. So if they're able to think about that, the out-of-pocket costs per individual is really quite modest and it'll have a net neutral impact on the practice, but it might help someone who now doesn't know how much they're going to pay and might possibly receive several thousand dollars of a bill to be secure in knowing that they pay their copay and they know that until they get a diagnosis, the diagnostic component is covered by their copay. So that's a frame shift from how we tend to think about imaging tests. But there's precedent there. If you take a look at CMS, there's a lot of bundled things like hip replacement. Those are bundled and there's a maximum out-of-pocket cost. So there's already a model that CMS has put out there. So it would be great to have that happen. I love that idea, Ruth. I mean, episode of care for screening. I mean, that's even better than for hip replacement. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm a lumper, not a splitter. So if we can make it happen for lung screening and for breast screening, it could potentially serve as a model for other screening tests. So, you know, we talked a little bit about being able to help patients who undergo lung screening and in whom cancer is found to cope with the costs of treatment. And some of the concerns I hear is kind of what I consider a mistaken belief that lung cancer patients brought it on themselves, when in fact, a large proportion of lung cancer patients do not necessarily have the risk exposure. So could we talk a little bit about how to destigmatize that? Because, you know, when you talk about social determinants of health or, you know, structural issues, some of the structural issues is the perception of others. 
Right, totally. And quite frankly, this is one that I'm very passionate about because regardless of whether a person smoked or did not smoke should not determine whether they deserve care, whether it's screening or care for their disease. And if you take a look at some of the influencers, if you take a look at the populations that have the higher smoking rates, it's basically some of the underprivileged populations. And so if you take a look at it, that behavior in a lot of ways is driven by the social determinants of health. Lower education, poverty. We can't just say, okay, well, they smoked or they're smoking and we're not going to cover them. They did it to themselves. So what we really have to do is frame it as not a behavior choice so much as it's an outcome based on your social determinants of health, where you live, your level of influence, your level of being influenced by others, where you go to school, what the norm is in that community, and then go from there to really address the root cause and not put a blame in there. I've been fortunate to work with a great team in looking at lung cancer screening in the VA, the Veterans Affairs System. And our government supplied the military with cigarettes for years and encouraged them to smoke. So it's a prime example of it's not something someone is doing wrong. It's the environment that they're in. And I think a big part of destigmatizing things is the words we choose to use to describe things. And that's something that we as individuals have the power to change. A lot of what we've talked about today is, you know, high level policy things, organizational change, but sometimes it's out of your control as an individual. But as an individual, you do have the power over the words you choose to use in your reports or in your interactions with patients or in your interactions with other providers. And so describing, you know, someone as a X year old smoker rather than, you know, someone who has smoked for this period of time or words like that are powerful, I think. Right. And one of the things that I'd like to say is people that I go around with, they're conscious of the fact that they should say people who smoke or people who used to smoke or people who never smoked when there's lay people or patients in the room. But when they're amongst themselves, they're smoker, never smoker, you know, former smoker. Oh, it's too hard to say it the other way. Well, tell you what, you know, if you're really going to change your culture and your mindset, you have to use it all the time. I cringe every time I hear someone say smoker. I cringe. (laughs) Well, I think we should normalize calling it lung screening, not lung cancer screening. I agree. Um, Because it's ultimately about lung health and what we can do to protect ourselves. So we are almost to the end of our time together, which is unfortunate because this has been the most fun conversation I've had today. So I tend to like to have calls to action. Because ultimately, we can talk and talk and talk, but we need to translate these ideas into action. So one of the things that I would like to call for is a better understanding of the financial burden that we impose on patients as an adverse event of care. You know, patients have side effects related to the actual treatment. Financial toxicity is a side effect of care, just as much as physical adverse events are. So I would like to call for a collective focus on more robust patient level, patient specific price transparency tools, particularly at the time when patients need to make decisions and are afraid of the downstream costs. So a perfect example is for lung screening and you're doing that shared decision-making episode and you're supposed to talk about 
a false positive or the potential cost, but no one actually gives the patients a number. So what can we do to facilitate that? But that piece is only a little bit of it. And maybe, Andrea, you can say a little bit more about what we can do on a broader level. Yeah. Okay. So from my standpoint, I'd like to address two things. One that we didn't really talk about yet, which is the use of technology and technology often increasing health disparity instead of actually reducing it like it's supposed to be. And one prime example is telehealth. It really was life-saving during the pandemic to be able to do telehealth visits. But there were a lot of people that didn't have access to the internet that couldn't do two-way. You know, luckily CMS approved straight audio only, but we have to be very careful as we implement telehealth more and more. And we want to do that because it actually improves access to care, reduces transportation, but we need to really take a look at what are the things that people, do they have the technical literacy? Can we have telehealth, you know, navigators that will help people hook up and get the services they need, provide devices with minimum standards? So I think that's one thing. So I would ask every practice and everybody on this phone call to think about when they do implement and are using telehealth to make sure that they're actually providing access for the people they need. And then the other thing is, I think that every single clinician, when they talk to a patient, every single provider should do an assessment of the social determinants of health. Food security, transportation, you know, a place to live, those things, and then have a list of services that they either provide or they can refer someone to. It might be as easy as referring someone to the Department of Public Health of the local state or the local county and just saying, okay, go there and they'll help you. But start there as step one. Both of you talked about diversity and how that can help mitigate some of this. Could you say a little bit more about that as part of our call to action? I think it has been so encouraging over the past several years to see organizations really commit to supporting diversity and equity and inclusion efforts. But from what I've seen so far, these efforts have really been more inward focused on the institutions themselves. You know, how diverse our workforce is, how inclusive the work environment is. I think it's really important for our organizations to recognize that health equity is a little different, has more of an outward look. It's focusing on our patients and our relationships in our communities and having programs available to meet health-related social needs. So my ask would be that we start to recognize that diversity and inclusion efforts and health equity efforts are synergistic, but really require vastly different resources and infrastructures and really start to encourage organizations to recognize this and to start to support health equity needs in addition to the diversity and inclusion efforts. Unfortunately, we are at the end of our time together. I love chatting to the two of you, and I always learn something new whenever we meet. So perhaps next time we could get on another podcast and solve the world's problems. Sounds <laughs> good to me, Ruth. Looking this forward to great. it, Ruth. Thank you for being here. And thanks to everyone else who has joined us on this podcast. Bye. 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 Plural Space is a joint production by the American College of Radiology and the National Lung Cancer Roundtable. Episodes were produced by Hannah Burson, with series production assistance by Tiffany Gowan, Lauren Rosenthal, and Kenley Byrne. Editing of this series is by Port City Films. A webinar on this episode's topic, as well as additional information, can be found at the link in the episode description. 